Hey everybody, before we get started, I just wanted to jump on because we are so excited to announce that Restore Registration is officially open. We can't wait to be with you again this year. It's going to be on September 5th through 7th at the Mountain America Expo Center in Sandy, Utah. That's the evening of September 5th and then all day on the 6th and the 7th. Three days of incredible speakers, poets, musicians, and artists. We really think that what we have planned will blow you away again this year, so you won't want to miss it. Go to faithmatters.org slash restore for tickets and we'll see you there. Hey everybody, this is Aubrey Chavez from Faith Matters. For today's conversation, we spoke with Fiona Givens and Britta Elvanger about a remarkable journey to Ukraine that they just returned from. When Russia launched its attack on Ukraine, Fiona felt an inspired pull on her heart to help the situation however she could. That led to an inspired series of events that took her to Britta, and in the last two weeks to Poland, and then into Ukraine itself, traveling with Britta and helping to get humanitarian aid to the end of the road as the crisis deepens in Ukraine. We'll let Fiona and Britta tell more of the story, but they were also kind enough to explore with us the implications that our faith and our covenants might have when it comes to our engagement in humanitarian crises or other large-scale issues. We also talk about how we can help when it seems like so many things are going wrong all at once. Many of you know Fiona and her work well, but for those who are hearing her for the first time, she's the author of several books, including All Things New, which was published by Faith Matters last year, and The God Who Weeps, both co-authored with her husband, Terrell. She was born in East Africa and educated at Catholic boarding schools, later doing graduate work in European history. She's taught French and German and has worked as a lobbyist and communications director for a nonprofit. She has published in the Journal of Mormon History, Dialogue, Exponent 2, LDS Living, and with Rutledge Press. She's a frequent speaker at Firesides and Women's Conferences. Until February 24, 2022, Britta Elvanger was a graduate student at the National University of Kiev Mohila Academy in their flagship anti-corruption studies program. She has switched to full-time humanitarian aid until the war is over. She has been living, working, and investing in Ukraine for 10 years. She has a BA from Stanford University in political science. Britta's organization For Peace focuses on the frontline needs of this war because it's the first piece of the domino effect that leads to the refugee crisis. Britta's written an article on Faith Matters' website that gives a really up-to-date synopsis about the situation on the ground and gives actionable ways to help the effort on the front lines through For Peace. You can find that article and our other published material on the war in Ukraine at faithmatters.org Ukraine. Thanks so much for listening, and with that, we'll jump right into the episode. Okay, Fiona and Britta, thank you so much for joining us. It's really a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. Um, you have both had a remarkable uh, few weeks and months. Um related to this uh, crisis, this war uh, in Ukraine. Um, we'd love to hear maybe to start how both of you ended up involved in this and hear more of the story. Maybe, Britta, could we start with you and how these last few months have, have gone for you? Mm -hmm. I got involved in Ukraine 10 years ago when I got called on my mission there. And um, right when I finished my mission was in 2013 in October. And that was right when, like a month later, the... It's called, it was at the time called the Yevromaidan. Now they refer to it as a revolution of dignity, but that's when, yeah, the revolution happened. They kicked out the old president who had gone back on his presidential campaign promises to have Ukraine enter the, well, not enter the EU, but sign a, um, association agreement. And, um, before I had been in, I took my, um, leave of absence from undergrad to serve my mission. And I had been a poli sci major focusing on the Middle East. And I just, after my mission, it was like, okay, like, I'm very interested in keeping on learning about Ukraine. Um, and with everything that was happening, it just felt very relevant. And so I switched my focus to, in my degree, to Ukraine and Eastern European politics. And then, um, yeah, finished up my undergrad, started graduate school um, in the States, focused on Ukraine again. Um, 
And then that's just kind of been like the past 10 years has been on and off uh, working, figuring out how to be in Ukraine, how to study in Ukraine, work in Ukraine, and then other life choices that yeah. took me elsewhere for a little bit. Okay. And then how about the specifics on these last since January? Yeah. So um, since I was uh, enrolled in the master's program at a university in Kiev and is an anti-corruption program. And so I was living in Ukraine, you know, it was pretty much around, I want to say like since October of last year that there was growing observations about buildup of the Russian military along the border with Ukraine. Um, I remember it was kind of in December, maybe already, maybe even earlier where like there was, you know, increasing rumors, not even rumors, but just like statements by the U.S. government or other governments like there's going to be a war, there's going to be a war. Um, and you just kind of, you know, I'd be walking around in Kiev with my friends and would like, do you think there's going to be a war? I don't know, maybe. And yeah. then you move on with your life and buy a chocolate bar. Um, mm -hmm. And then, yeah, you know, I remember... Um, we started our second semester of university in January, and there were increasingly just, uh, there was, you know, political escalations going on in Moscow. They had the meeting amongst his cabinet where they decided to officially um, bring in the Luhansk um, People's Republic and the Donetsk People's Republic into, you know, incorporate into Russia. And um, I mean, this was all happening like live while we were taking classes over Zoom for COVID. And, and I remember, you know, even there were, talks about evacuation plans, about like know where your bomb shelter is. And I just remember we got like texts from, um, if you know, like Klitschko, the famous boxer. So he's yes. a, he's the mayor of Kiev. So we got texts from Klitschko being like, Kievans, like know your evacuation plan. And our teacher was just like, evacuate where? And laughed. And then we moved on with our lecture. <laughs> wow. um, so that was January. And then I wasn't, I had gone to visit my dad in Israel because that's where he lives um, for his birthday on January 18th. And around that time, before I left, there was rumors about embassies already secret, not secretly, but quietly evacuating their employees. Um, but they were denying it publicly. Uh, and then finally, when I was, yeah, about mid-January, when I was with my dad in Israel, was when the U.S. embassy officially said, like, any, um, that they were in talks about evacuating and they recommended that any um, American civilians leave Ukraine. And so... Uh, I just, and I didn't know if I should take it seriously or not. I asked a friend of mine who was in the military what he thought, and he told me that I should leave. So I just kept on postponing my flight. And then, um, and yeah, I was kind of like living in limbo in Israel for almost a month. Um, and then I had, it, it got to the feeling where I thought, how long do I live in limbo? I should probably go back. So I was looking at flights to return and woke up at 5 a.m. to the news that, Kiev had been bombed and even um, what was kind of more surprising was the first day of this escalation in the war because the war has been going on since 2014. But, um, you know, it was very he, like Putin really made the message on the first day. This was a full Ukraine war because he bombed on the Western border um, as well. So, wow, yeah. I, and Fiona, I want to get to how you two met up, but can I just ask you when this all started, is this what you imagined that war would look like? Because I think mm. one of the things that was so jarring to me is that I have this, and maybe thankfully because we've been so separated from war, you know, forever, living very safely in the middle of the United States, that I have this image in my mind of like open battlefields, which I don't even know where that would be, and mm -hmm. soldiers, fighting soldiers. And it, it was so disturbing to see that war looks like 
bombing, bombing apartment buildings. Yeah. yeah. Yes. I mean, like to right away just watch something that was more terror than anything else. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. this this isn't for the most part a war. I mean, it, there are front lines and there's battles, but it's war crime after war crime after war crime, and that is shocking. Yeah, so scary. And so I want I know we're going to kind of jump around, but Fiona, let's talk about how you and Britta met up. Well, um it uh when Terrell was teaching at the University of Richmond, there was a young girl who was interested in joining the church. Her name is Erin. And um, she ended up joining. And of course, she promptly became part of the family. And, uh, you know, so our relationship was just blossomed. Uh, she's a beautiful young woman. She had served her mission in Russia. And she said that, I, I don't know how Britta came into the conversation. It must have been after the invasion, but that she was really, really close friends with Britta in the MTC. And, um, she had a book club. She has a book club. She lives in Salt Lake. And together they raised enough money to keep a bakery going. Was that in Mariupol? Mm-hmm. In Mariupol. And I, I was just so impressed with how little could achieve so much. And um, anyway, she invited me to a Zoom meeting with Britta and her mom. And it was then I I just... I just felt this, not urgency, but it was sort of a deliberate, uh, you need to get involved. And I wasn't sure how to get involved, but I just knew that I needed to do something. And then like with Britta on the 24th, I I don't generally watch the news because it's so depressing, (laughs) but I was riveted and I have been riveted ever since. So something, there's something about this war in Ukraine it's now it's another a European war, and um, so that that rings uh, familiarly uncomfortable. Um, Europe tends to be ravaged by European wars, and uh, and and so it was just this is my home, this is my place. Um, I need to do something, and I just really loved what For Peace was doing, and uh, and and that's how that's how it started. And um, I fell in love with Britta immediately and her bravery and everything that she was doing to help alleviate the suffering in Ukraine um, really struck me as this is something I really would like to become a part of. Yeah. Wow. Well, I, I think we want to commend you both for mm-hmm. incredible bravery and courage that you've that you've shown. And we'll get into your more recent um, uh, trip that actually took you into into Ukraine itself. Um, but maybe, maybe to set a little more context for that trip, could you talk about what Four Peace does and what its what its mission is? Mm-hmm. Um, Four Peace was started in the early two thousands, and uh, its first kind of location that it worked in was Cambodia, and it focused on post genocidal reconstruction there. And um, its main project was instead of like micro lending, it really focused on microfinancing, which we believe. It more focuses on like really empowering those and not putting them into more debt. Um, And with this microfinancing program and then a couple of um, craft focused, you know, initiatives of employment, whether it was um, silk weaving and making silk products to um, metalwork, we were collaborating with a local organization called Tabitha Cambodia that got half a million people out of poverty. 
And then from Cambodia, it expanded to working in Israel amongst Bedouin, um, Bedouins in the Negev Desert, and also Arab Israelis in the Nazareth region. Um, from there, it expanded into doing more um, environmental projects and um, yeah, environmental sustainability projects amongst high schoolers. Um, and then it went back into Cambodia to do um, rainforest preservation, one of the, the final rainforests in Cambodia. And we had been ever since, um, so the, the four piece was started by my mom. She's the director. And so after my mission, we started like a little project in, Cam uh, in Ukraine that was helping crafts women and men kind of in the Western area. It's a little bit more economically depressed. Um, and so like we had like a little, we helped a woman who makes ties and kind of traditional Ukrainian patterns. And then another woman who, um, is really talented in the, like hand weaving in traditional Ukrainian way, Vishivanka it's called. And then another kind of guy who does a uh, handwork. So. And so this assistance was through microfinance. That was more, um, just helping kind of provide a platform for their own businesses so that, yeah, that didn't use the microfinance process. Um, Got or, it. Okay. Yeah, method. So, so I'd love to hear how, as the, as this conflict sort of evolved, mm -hmm. what role did four piece start yeah. taking? So then after February 24th, mm -hmm. um, I was in Israel and, uh, the first couple of days, you know, you're just doom scrolling and, you know, trying to keep up on everything. Um, I don't know in the America, do people use the program or platform telegram? Yes. It's kind of like WhatsApp yeah. or Viber. Yeah. I think around here it's actually used in the technology communities, especially like crypto, stuff like that. Okay. But yeah, okay. it's, it, I don't think it's widely used, but. So yeah. telegram is like very used in Eastern Europe and it's where like you get your news, you're on multiple chats for, you know, your volunteer group, or whatever. Um, like my school is almost like entirely run on telegram. Right. Um, but yeah, so there were just like my telegram just exploded and I kept on joining more and more channels, just kind of seeing um, different local grassroots efforts, uh, recommending, you know, how, where to help, where to put money or not. Um, and then I just remember, you know, reading and it was just such a fascinating angle into like what war relief looks like by locals. Um, like it wasn't anything having to do with big orgs. It was just like, you know, three people in Lviv who are running the manning the train station and trying to help already, you know, with refugees or getting food into areas where there already wasn't, you know, something had been hit. And so they needed water somewhere. Um, and then I remember when I started reading about like, um, there would be a couple people like, hey, so like this really big org, like just kind of dumped like six tons of stuff at the train station. We don't really know what to do with it. And then you'd get like, you know, Pasha being like, uh, I guess I have a truck. Like I could pick some of it up and bring it elsewhere. And then and then it was like, but I don't have gas money. So can like someone send me gas money? Oh, wow. And I don't know. It was just I remember reading and being like, wait, what? That's what aid looks like. And these are like big aid orgs. Um, so at that point, I just thought, um, yeah, I remember like that was like, OK, wow, this is what, you know, we see big aid and we just kind of see the mm, sort of like the external view. But it, mm -hmm. yeah, it was just so interesting to see like, oh, like ultimately this is all volunteer run and it's just kind of placed somewhere. I mean, this is also, you know, this is first week, two weeks. So it's really chaotic. Um, logistics are just being figured out. I had a couple of friends who, um, well, I had one friend who was a Fulbright scholar in Ukraine, and he had been evacuated out into Poland. And obviously, Poland is like, still now one of the most affected by the refugee crisis. Um, they've taken almost 4 million Ukrainians. 
And so right away, like that just became a hot border. And um, there was a lot of need just to translating and helping house, you know, Ukrainians that were coming in. And so as I was just kind of sitting in Israel, like reading the news, the, the question just kept on going like, okay, well, like, what more can I do? And this is where Aaron, Fiona's friend comes in because she was like, contact me constantly. This girl is just, I was so impressed that this like girl in Salt Lake City was like, okay, Britta, like, you're the one that's living in Ukraine. Tell us what we should do. I have this book club. They want to do things. So I remember wow. early on, it was like, okay, like, I'm on these different volunteer chats. I can tell you right now, like this org is trying to keep this bread factory going in Mariupol, which as we know, is like been occupied. I mean, it's one of the most biggest tragedies of the war. And yeah, like a book club in Salt Lake City kept one of the bread factories running until wow. like full occupation happened. Wow. Um, and so, and I was like, I remember when I got like the first day, this stage, I wasn't even doing it for, for peace. I was just Britta, the girl that was living in Ukraine and people like <laughs> asked me what, like what orgs I recommended. And so they were sending me on Venmo. And I just remember when I first I like, got, you know, donations, I was just floored that people trusted me enough to like send it on. Um, but yeah, I hadn't really thought of connecting it to For Peace at all. And I just kind of thought my my friend John was in Warsaw and talking to him. He was like, you know, Brita, like you speak Ukrainian, like there's something for you to do here with refugees. So I first just decided to go um, and just see what I could do at the shelters. Um, at the very least, I could help translate. Um, and then, yeah, within like the first, but then I just also, because of these telegram channels that I was part of, I just had direct line of contact and saw, again, like this just really interesting grassroots element to like how Ukrainians were doing aid and how they were helping themselves. And so just very quickly, I naturally was part of these supply chains of like different, you know, because the way that the war is right now, um, there's the official military units. And then there was this explosion of what's called the Teraboroni, Territorial Defense Forces. And it's essentially just like volunteers who are locals. Um, and they've been called, they either volunteer or they've been called to help out, but like they have no training in the military. They obviously have no equipment. The military also doesn't really have equipment. Um, and so it was like, just like, get these guys camouflage, like camo clothes, get them body armor, get them shoes, get them socks, like get them. And this is freezing. This is like February, which in Ukrainian February is called Luthi. And that means like, like, it's like the word, like, uh, the word is like freezing. It's, it's terrifying. Like it is a cold month. So for these guys to be standing outside at checkpoints, like guarding against a Russian invasion was insane. Like they're really just wearing sweatpants and, you know, a scarf. So just all of a sudden I was in Warsaw and I like I just knew the contact people to go to. I would go to army surplus stores um, and kind of purchase that. I remember like, yeah like walking in as like this little girl to the army surplus store. And, and I was like, hi, I'd like to buy these. And the guy just totally disregarded me. And then I came out with like $10,000 worth of stuff. And he was like, okay, I will deal with you, you customer. Um, so yeah, and I just, you know, we ran, brought it to the contact lady who was responsible for the Kiev-based Tereboroni in Warsaw. And then within a day, she had the, like the bus that brought it in to the guys. And like, you know, the whole way that it works with Ukrainians when you're sending an aid is like, uh, you get kind of photo um, verification that the aid was received and that they're wearing it, that it wasn't stolen or lost or whatever else. And so I remember like the next day, like I got this picture of like these guys mm. who were wearing the balaclavas we had, uh, you know, that I had fundraised for thanks to like Aaron and these original wonderful people who decided to donate money. And then, um, yeah, they had, you know, they had their uh, thermal underwear, they had um, gloves and I think like it honestly just sort of slowly happened that I realized like, wait, this is 
this is like a Ukraine relief project and um, everything's in place to just have this be the new, a new uh, program under For Peace. And so I talked to my mom about it and we set it up and I became the manager of it. Wow, wow. that is so amazing. So, so now you're continually just feeding these supply chains. Yeah. Trans- so are you, so basically transferring the, the relief from the border to the front line. Yeah. I mean, we get it also from, so there's things that are already not readily accessible in Europe anymore. So that's where we get it from the States, bring it into Poland and we get it through the, you know, we declare it and then bring it through and wow. Yeah. Deliver it where, where it's been asked to be given. Wow. So Fiona, would you want to, would you want to talk about your experience going on this trip recently? What, how you decided to do that, what you saw and some takeaways from that? Um, I I just felt this imperative to go, and um, I'm still trying to figure it out whether it was a mad Irish speaking or whether it was my dad on the English side, you know, go in and do something. Yeah. Um, but um, I, I I gathered together a group of women from our ward and said, you know, this is what I'd like to do. I'd like to, and Britta had told me that the supplies that they needed, primarily first aid kits, uh, tourniquets and chest um, presses, as well as all also the uh, depression, decom- decompression, needles. decompression mm-hmm. needles, because when you get hit in the chest by shrapnel, it obviously co- oftentimes collapses a lung. So those are really, really important. So um, this group of sisters was terribly excited. It actually it happened before that on the 24th. I just felt this incredible feeling of um It was a really low point in my life. I was really um, struck by how this invasion was affecting me. And um, I I realized that prayer on my own wasn't going to help. I just knew that um, this was something so much bigger than myself. So um, I called our Relief Society president, Heidi, and I said, do you think it would be possible for some of us women to get together and have a prayer for Ukraine. And it st- sort of started from there. These beautiful c- people came in. Um, everybody uh, explained why the, why this had affected them, why they thought that this was important in their lives. And then um, I asked uh, a friend of mine who lives just down the road if if she could come. She was in Park City. Um, it, took a, it took her the time for us to wrap up and she walked in. And then everybody offered a prayer. I said, I can't pray for everybody. Um, you know, express your concerns. And then she prayed finally. I had no idea she'd served her mission in Ukraine. And and she prayed in Ukrainian. And suddenly that made it very real, that connected us immediately with Ukraine. And and then I felt that there was something we had to do. And the sisters all gathered together. We managed to get enough material for six huge duffel bags in a week. It was in an incredible short space of time because I knew I, I knew I had to leave at a certain point. And so I booked my flight and uh, and then I left. <laughs> I was in San Diego for speaking engagements with Terrell. And so over the weekend, these women got all of the supplies together. They packed them. Uh, it, it was just extraordinary the amount they did. So essentially, I just had to come home and pick them up. Friend, a friend of ours had a truck. Um, took us to the airport, um, negotiated with Delta about could we have, you know, not quite pay the full amount for oh, wow. <laughs> for all of those things. And after those discussions, I got a free bag. 
And so, <laughs> so that was something. How very generous of them. <laughs> yeah, that was something. Um, but yeah, and then it was on my way and um, Britta's mom, Margaret, was waiting for me in Warsaw. And um, the, the week was filled with extraordinary experiences, um, which I could never have done. I could never have gone to Kiev or to the South if it hadn't been for both Britta and her mom and their contacts. And it was just amazing to meet these people who were seeing Ukraine in the future. So they were p planning soccer leagues and cleaning up the environment. And they were just thinking through the war to the end when they would be able to truly integrate um, their communities into all of these beautiful projects. But um, the faith and the hope and the sheer goodness of these people were absolutely overwhelming and then in and we toured three hospitals um, um a, a regional hospital and then a maternity hospital and it was it, that brought it home to me when he said okay these wheelchairs in the hallway are for those women who are in labor so if we should get bombed we can't get them to the basement fast enough so we put them in the wheelchairs in the hallway and they should have enough protection i mean that sort of wow. thing just yeah it just really really got to me. And then in the last hospital, um, we met um, this beautiful neurosurgeon mm -hmm. and um, he took us on his rounds. And so we started off watching two soldiers go through an MRI to pin pinpoint um, shrapnel. the shrapnel. And, oh um, and, and he gave this really beautiful testimony is that what we have to do is ensure that um, these boys are wearing body armor because there's nothing one can do with shrapnel wounds. He says it, it goes in yeah. and then it destroys everything inside. And so this particular man had been wearing his body armor and they discovered um, you know, a piece of shrapnel in his side, which was easy to take care of. But he made this really beautiful, compelling plea um, that we need to protect he called it protective clothing. We need to protect the Ukrainian, um, the Ukrainian soldiers because um, if if they're not protected, then there is and they are killed. There is nothing to stop the Russian troops from moving in into their wives and families and decimating um, the civilian population. Wow, we're talking about war crimes on a really malevolent level. So it was. Um, it was extraordinary. It was just an extraordinary experience for me, and particularly to meet Britta and watch how she worked and the connections that she had and the trust that she had from um, from people. And I realized that this, for me anyway, this was the way to go because I knew I was getting into Britta and we watched it. So we had a, a truck full of supplies that um, left, where did we start from? I can't remember. Left Warsaw. Well, started in Salt Lake, right? Started yeah. in Salt Lake. <laughs> yes, it yeah. started in Salt Lake. The REIs around here. Yes, yes, that's exactly right. That's exactly oh, right. Yeah, Warsaw. And yeah, and then Warsaw. And then we just followed the shipment as it moved across the border, moved to um, uh, um, mm, Kiev, and then down south. And then we watched it being unloaded and um, delivered. And delivered I, I to the recipients. Today. Yes, yeah. yes. Wow. And the recipient, the heads of these different aid organizations coming to pick up um, the food and then our supplies uh, went to the front lines. Can you talk about just what you saw on in, 
you know, following the truck? Like, what does it what does it look like? And where do four million refugees go? Like, were you seeing? Did you see the shelters? And just talk um, like that's so hard to imagine. Yeah, um, oh, did you see any? I don't think you no, did. No, I didn't see. Yeah, so there is like the the supply chain wor- relief world is like a totally different thing than um, uh, refugee work. And so I don't think Fiona saw any refugee shelters. Um, yeah, when I first moved to Poland, that's where I. I would work and stay. So there's some really big, um, basically they've converted like big warehouses um, and sort of, what are the, what are they called? Like industrial style malls down on the border into these massive shelters. And there's just kind of little cots set up. Um, World Central Kitchen is there providing hot food. There's like a a medical tent. Um, I'm blanking on how many border checks at border crossings there are i think there's like six anyway so there's a there's a shelter at each of these um crossing points and um ideally you want these people to you know they come in maybe they'll stay for a day or two while they're figuring out transport some of them know where they want to go many of them don't um they obviously very few of them have the finances to you know i mean their lives are totally destroyed um i would honestly say like refugee work is so difficult um it is just horrifying to see people at that state of their life like to watch 60 year old retirees who you know yeah they're finally on pension and they should be happily living their lives out in their little cottage and they're standing in a line with you know styrofoam plates to have one hot meal in an overcrowded building it's like um it's really debilitating and it's really hard to um it's hard to like keep um like energy i find that supply chain work is just like because you're bringing aid in and it's there's like a little bit more energy with it there just seems to be like a little bit more hope like um most people a lot of aid workers kind of end up switching between the two just because you need sort of like (laughs) one provides a little bit more hope and relief for you although I don't know. The, the realities of, of supply chain relief is, are also pretty difficult. But yeah, I mean, refugee work is hard because it's just we don't know when this is going to end. Um, it is such a massive project. Like, what do you do to help people, you know, completely relocate their lives and research their lives, find new jobs, have a home, um, you know, and, you know, mentally they they've been in survival mode getting across the border and so usually when you're at the shelters like that's their first time they're sitting and they're processing what happened um there's a room in the shelters for those that have experienced sexual violence um that's you know yeah you just um viscerally feel and see like how vulnerable refugees are um, like the experiences you have where, again, like as a translator too, there's probably, um, there's a, a big conversation we had about the politics of refugee centers. I don't know anywhere, uh, especially in Poland, like there's very little state help. So it's mostly volunteer run. Um, there's very few people who can translate, at least when I was there. And so for, uh, a shelter that had about, hmm, 
500 people. There was probably three or four that could translate for these people oh, and figure wow. out where they needed to go, help them figure out where they could go, um, help them, you know, because you have this, uh, I'm sure you've heard about it. There's a lot of um, members of the church who are, you know, taking vans and going to these shelters, offering to take them wherever they want. Um, but you need somebody to translate what those options are. So, yeah, I just remember there was uh, I was, you know, you're running around con- like you're inundated by people who are like asking you where they need to go, how to get there. You're trying to help explain where they could go. And then I got this like little tap on my shoulder and I turn around and there's like maybe a 14 year old boy. And he like, you know, has me like bend down and then he whispers in my ear and it's just like, we need to get to Spain. And I turn to his mom and I see that he's um, communicating in sign language with her. So his oh, mom was oh was deaf and mute. And this entire process is up to a 14 year old boy who only speaks Russian. He's from Donetsk. So like this guy has since 2014 been experiencing the war. And like, Honestly, even that itself is just like, oh, my gosh, like a 14 year old boy is in charge of his family getting to Spain. Um, I contact like you know, there's like a little desk at the time. Things in the shelters change really fast again because it's refuge uh, volunteer run. Um, it kind of depends on the internal politics, like whichever volunteer ends up being the better organizer kind of sets it up to be how they want it to be. So at the time that I was there, there was just this central desk in one of the big halls. And then there was a guy in a microphone like, <laughs> like there's a bus to Munich. And you, maybe someone hears it and says wow. they want to go. Wow. Maybe they miss it. Anyway, so I go up to this table and I ask, like, do you guys have anyone going to Spain? They're like, Spain? No. And I was like, okay, well, when was the last time there was one? They're like, honestly, I don't remember there being one. Um, and so I was like, well, can you call the other, sh- like the other shelters, like across the border? Maybe there's a guy from Spain or a driver from Spain there. So I was just kind of talking with the other drivers and transportation options around. And there were some very helpful Germans that were, you know, saying, oh, well, we can take him to Munich. And then from Munich, he can take a train here and here and here. And finally, he'll get to Spain. I was like, he's 14. He's, he only speaks Russian again. Like his mom is deaf and dumb. It's like, what and i just remember at that point like i walked off and i was just like i think i gotta get this guy like a ticket like on a plane like this i think i don't know what to do with this guy um then like i heard on the microphone someone was like a bus to spain and so i ran there and i was just like where's the spain bus (laughs) (laughs) and it was just like this total mystery um sorry not mystery miracle it was just so unbelievable to then yeah be able to that same day have this boy and his mom safely go to Spain. Oh my gosh. Amazing. I um, would love to hear from both of you how your faith activates you. You know, I, it's clear that both of you felt so inspired to really get to work, but I'd love to hear how you connect that back to your faith. Well, for me, um, I, I think we're a universal church insofar as God is our father and he is um, the father of all humankind. And so I've always had this feeling of being connected to people within and outside of our faith. And um, I I knew that what was happening in Ukraine, uh, I I just felt that I had to do something to help. Um, It ended up being a, a massive, I don't know that I helped at all, except that it was such an educational experience for me. But um this idea that, and while we were there, there were miracles happening every day. And it was like, God is among these people. 
just little things, but they were happening all the time. It's like God is moving, his spirit is moving. And that just suddenly made it a holy venture and um, to be able to to do anything um, to help in this part of the vineyard. And then also, uh, you know, it's uh, our baptismal covenants. It's not to say that people aren't, millions of people aren't doing this um, in Ukraine and all around the world. But for me, there's particular power in those covenants to um, carry each other's burdens, to mourn with those who mourn and comfort those who stand in need of comfort. And maybe it was that call um, I was listening to, but but it really was um, beautiful because we found ourselves in quite a number of situations where we were comforting um, and in turn being comforted uh, as U- Ukrainian women primarily would come and you know, say, we, we can't believe you are here, um, that you are uh, spending your time to help, to help us in Ukraine. Uh, it, was, it was really quite an extraordinary thing, but it was wonderful for me to be able to live these commandments in a way I hadn't been able to live them before. Yeah. Britta, any, any thoughts on how your faith has played a role? Um. I definitely have like stayed really um, committed to Ukraine since my mission because precisely because of my faith, like I loved my mission experience, but I felt that it was um, kind of like the spiritual body for what, like for, for actually realizing um, something physical and material as a change and positive, like um, I'm, I love the standards that we get in the church, but I feel like they are immaterial and kind of like theoretical. And then it's obviously like the reason why we came to the earth was for this like me- physical realization and manifestation of, of our faith. And so um, I appreciated the experience of like sharing the gospel, but in a country that has that level of inequality, that level of corruption, um, just when you have a sense of like global inequality and the fact that we are just lucky that we were born in the states and it's other people you know different countries countries across the world like they just end up being with no choice of their own born into much more difficult situations um i just felt like i remember it was in a district meeting in my on my mission and we were talking about inequality and um like one of the one of the elders made a comment of like, well, it has to do with like a pre-earth life diligence and righteousness. Yikes! And I was like, no. <laughs> um, but it's more like I had this just like image in my head of like, you know, like like one of the purposes of life is to like bridge, it's to like be a bridge and to make sure that if there's something that's a lot in one country, like you you got to distribute it elsewhere um, and share it. And so I mean, I really did like I committed myself to Ukraine after my mission because I felt like Ukraine provided me this unique ability to see life from a different socioeconomic level and to have unique people living in that world that I didn't necessarily have in the States in my nice, comfy life. And um, I was grateful for my mission and I was grateful for the gospel, but there was like very real things that people needed. And that was what needed, that was kind of the next step was like, you know, they don't just need the Book of Mormon, like they need better jobs, they need better, not they need, but like, there's things that our financial, like our global financial world is responsible for, for causing in Ukraine, like, and you see it with the conversation about sanctions, like, 
our Western world looks as nice as it does because of the way we've set up the financial system to allow oligarchs to exist in Russia and Ukraine and to allow like the politics there to be as they are. So I think that we are responsible. And um, I just think like faith is is more than um, spiritual values. I think that these spiritual values set us up to have morals and then it's like very concrete things that are more economic and more political that we have to realize to actually like live up to that faith. Yeah. Wow. Let me let me ask. Okay, and I asked this question um, with a well, I guess with a sense of um, well, it's coming sort of from a place with a lot of privilege. Like you said, like you said, our lives here in the states are in many ways, or for many of us, not everyone, obviously, but are nice and comfy, mm-hmm. you know. And um, that's the reality. And I, I say that I say this with that in mind. Um, if you look at it from the perspective of what the average American or Latter Day Saint news consumer is seeing in the past couple of years, it's you know it's pandemic, and then it's uh, you know it's war in Ukraine. There are other you know global crises, but then there's there's shootings happening. You know, the last yeah. two weeks there have been Gosh. separate mass mass shootings uh, in the U S and like in an ideal world, we all sort of stand up and stay really like thoughtfully and faithfully engaged on all of these really difficult (laughs) issues. And again, this is, this point comes from a place of such privilege that I'm saying it with like a ton of like self-loathing, (laughs) self-loathing, but like, how do you, like, it can, it can be exhausting and overwhelming and difficult. And it's not difficult compared to refugees like who are leaving their homes and it's not difficult to be to compared to people that have just lost loved ones in shootings. Um, but from the perspective of the relative ease with which we normally live, it's, it can seem like a lot. So what does our, what does our faith encourage us or require us to do in the face of so many different crises and challenges that we're confronting? Um, I, I think that's a brilliant question and I'll just jump in. I think um, there are so many um, cases as there are people. And um, I feel that we're all called to something, to do something. And um, just sort of the entire output of people in, engaged in different areas of alleviating suffering, poverty, um, and, and that sort of thing, it, we just listen. And for me, um, it was a very strong call to Ukraine. I, I've only felt this one other time in my life. But that's just me. It's um, something that I felt that I really needed to do. But there are millions, billions of people around the world. And, and I think for me, it's being able to hear that call. And, and, and different people are called to different areas. But the sum of our, uh, of our collaborative, our, our collaboration, even though we don't know each other in Ottawa, is, is what alleviates glo- global pain. Because there are so many areas in which it is felt um, as excruciatingly as it is now in Ukraine. So for me, uh, I I just feel that we are called to different areas. We do whatever we can in those areas, but the joint work of humanity in trying to build a place where there can be peace, where there can be a global Zion, where Christ can come, um, is universal. And uh, I, I think very beautiful. Each person on our planet has a role. That, is that reminds me of 
I think it was President Eyring years ago that talked about sudden feelings of sympathy, that somehow that's how our heavenly parents communicate to us what we're supposed to go and do. It's those like sudden, those yes. sudden intense feelings of sympathy that just are uncomfortable. But when you think of those as a as an impetus for action, then it is really a powerful experience to yes. recognize that like something is pulling on your heart yes. for a reason. Yes. Absolutely. And and for me, I'm not I'm not entirely sure what the reason um is, but just to witness um the beauty of people's souls and the miracles that were happening, just to feel that God was embedded in this um in this awful situation. And like the last day, uh, this is where I saw the spirit moving. So there is this elderly woman, her husband died in January and she had a stroke during the invasion. And, um, and she was going to um, Warsaw to be picked up from her daughter who lived in Amsterdam. But her son had come to see her off. She was sitting right opposite us and she stood in the corridor for a long time, just he and she having this quiet conversation of farewell, which may be a permanent farewell. He's not allowed to leave Ukraine. And, um, and, and one doesn't know for how long this will continue. But then in, in the carriage right opposite me, uh, she's also a diabetic and she collapsed. And, uh, and just to watch, um, Margaret, Britta's mother and Britta and myself, as we just gathered around, I couldn't do anything. So I just sat behind her and stroked her hair. But Britta was on the phone with her son going through the medications. Um, and uh, there was this, uh, somebody on the train, an employee on the train who mm -hmm. came by and they weren't sure that she needed to get off. But that was the last thing in the world that would have been good for her is to come off that train and not know anybody and nobody know what she needed at the time. So that was really beautiful. And then they called for a doctor and the very next stop, a doctor and a nurse got on board and checked her and Britta had got given her the right medications because her Ukrainian is that good. <laughs> and, um, and it was just so beautiful to be there and then watch her being reunited with her daughter at the other end. That, that was a, a magnificent experience for me to watch, to watch people in Zion answering a, 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 that call. And, and when I'm talking about Zion, I am talking about global and the, um, and the concern in the whole carriage for this woman um, by all of the people who were sitting there. It was really, it was a sacred experience, I have to say. It sounds, it sounds that way. And I love the idea that like, maybe that's how we see God's hand showing up in this conflict yes. as much as we'd like for there to just be peace, like peace demanded yeah. <laughs> that it's beautiful that there are ways that we can see God's hand still. Yes. Yes. I also really sympathize with the question you asked and like you, you minimized it and said that, you know, it's not the same as, as watching someone die or something else. But like, I think that's not to minimize the fact that like you described an existential crisis <laughs> That has been the question of all of philosophy since, you know, right. philosophy began. And I think we all have a personal experience with feeling at a total loss with, like, your empathy and your concept of um, wanting to be responsible for certain things in life and then also just having no idea what to do about that. And then, yeah, like, you can't stretch yourself thin. And um, I know, like, on like, very seriously, I have been, like, in a low place for like 10 years with that exact same question. It's just like, what do you do when you acknowledge you have an obligation to humanity, but 
there's so much to be like responsible for. Um, and I just, I do feel like, um, yeah, as, as Fiona touched, like, I think that there's something to be said for everybody has your specific thing to do, like in your specific sphere and like localized elements of activism are not tiny or isolated. Like a tiny book club in Salt Lake City wanted to, they felt the call to do something in Ukraine. And then there was just this link between me and a girl. I Like Aaron is someone that I have very minimal contact with. We were in the MTC together for a month. Haven't I've honestly seen her in person like once after that. For whatever reason, we just kept in touch. And then all of a sudden, like the war happens and this little book club could like fund a bakery in one, you know, in Mariupol, which is going down in history books is like one of the greatest desecrated cities of all time and one of the biggest like, you know, human rights crimes of all time. But like a book club in Salt Lake City provided bread there for as long as possible. Um, and I don't I don't think that there is something where like um I don't think everybody has to feel responsible for Ukraine, but I, I still think that, that if you're if you're reading about Ukraine, if you if you're feeling concerned, like there really are ways to to be involved and they're surprisingly close by. And they're also like so, like little things just aren't little in the end and little people aren't little in the end. I feel like I've just been pounded by this realization and like almost you could say a testimony of this since I went to Poland in February. But I mean, the coincidental ways that I just ran into little person after little person after little person and then like Fort Peace just expanded. I mean, yeah, in the, in the beginning, like I was just shipping out a couple of boxes of hemostatic bandages to Donetsk to the, a volunteer hub that was then giving them out on, on the front line. And at this point, like um, through just friends of friends and friends and trying to help fund them, you know, get whatever they needed, um, we ended up meeting this like unbelievable contact. Um, who, and now we're like massively on like a scale of hundreds of people providing life-saving aid at the front line of like one of, yeah, like a front line of the war. And it's just all done through a bunch of little people doing what they could and then like the power of just connection. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's been really beautiful to see the ways that like, it doesn't matter how far away you are. Um, just wanting to reach out your hand and say like, this hand is here. It wants to do something like that is way more than enough. Yeah. And I just think we sometimes overcomplicate it. But I also think there's something we said, like you're not responsible for everything in the world. And you are like, I don't know. I think we go through existential moments or years, like, you know, desert times and droughts. Um, I don't know why we have to experience that and like feel so useless for so long. But I think like a time does come where whatever you've been doing comes together and you're prepared to do something that really matters. Yeah, wow. I love that. And may maybe some of the doctrinal underpinnings of that idea could be found in, you know, out of small and simple things are great things brought to pass mm -hmm. or the worth of the soul, the worth of the soul is great in, in the sight of God, you know? And if you were going to go like really cliche, like sacramental talk, <laughs> the, the starfish analogy, right? Like these little things, even if they're little on a global scale, man, they can really, they can really matter mm -hmm. too. To and people. I just love how it, it feels like such a great act of faith to do the one thing you can do, you know, mm -hmm. like to, to offer your hand and, and trust that 
something will come of it. Like God will connect you in to the next thing if you just start. And it, it, sometimes it's just that paralysis that we have to break yes. to get the, to get like the faith yeah. moving, like the, to get the energy flowing and mm-hmm. and the miracles flowing. And I think oftentimes we're looking at massive things, and there, you know, these are the things that we I need to save you, Craig. Right. And it's like, okay, that's going to throw you into a profound depression for a very long time, yeah. probably until the war's over. But if you just say, I, I like this, you know, I think it's a beautiful analogy of the book club. Okay, we can do this one thing. Yeah. We can provide enough funds to help this bakery. And you have everybody all around doing that one seemingly small thing. But the accumulation of those small things leads to something really quite extraordinary, which is exactly what you're saying. And I think for me anyway, these scriptures sometimes become very repetitive and they just become platitudes. But I I lived that this last week, um, seeing all of these people involved in trying to make the environment better in in a a really industrialized city where but it is it, it's, it's, cancer is one of the highest rates in Ukraine. Yes, yeah, yeah. Wow. it's it's just extraordinary. And then including children, it's it, it's just extraordinary. And these different people with their different and and people might say, well, what does that have to do with the war? It has a lot to do with the war, um, as particularly with children engaging refugee children. So they'd come out and they've got this beautiful new soccer field um, for all of these you know children to play. Um, it, it's just, it's just ex- extraordinary to me. And I just, I, I just felt a privilege to actually see that working. Everybody was doing that bit and that, that bit might seem to them so little, but it isn't, it's absolutely enormous. And you put that all together and mm. it, truly it's, um, an extraordinary thing. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing your experience. I think this feels like a spark, you know, to that, that, will give all of us this perspective of this orchestration. You know, it, it it's motivating to think we can just do this one tiny thing and trust that God's going to orchestrate this to be, become something beautiful and actually and, and helpful. And it's just wonderful to see how that's played out for the two of you over the last few months now. <laughs> yeah. So thank you so much. Yeah. Thank really you. appreciate both of you. Thank you. Thank you. It's a privilege. Okay, that's it for today's episode. We really hope that you got a lot out of this conversation with Fiona and Britta, and we hope that you're as inspired by their courage and love as we are. We want to send them a huge thanks for coming on. And as always, if Faith Matters content is resonating with you and you get the chance, we would love for you to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you listen on. We read all of the reviews and it really helps us to get the word out about Faith Matters, and we appreciate the support. Thanks for listening, and remember you can check out more at faithmatters.org.